All right, it's my distinct honor to, I don't know, this is so weird. Yeah, Matt's here now, okay. Uh, yeah, you made that weird. That is not my fault. I'm gonna put that strictly on you. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that y'all are with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, anybody's first time with us tonight? Yes, what's your name? Amanda. Everybody find some time to shake Amanda's hand, welcome her warmly, make her feel at home. Thanks for being here with us. Did I miss anybody else? Yeah, okay, sir. What's your name? Nick? That is it. Nick, hey, that's a time-tested, proven name of valor, of bravery, and we're psyched that you're with us. Thanks for coming through. My name is Matt Moberg. We are in the midst of a summer series called Dancing in the Darkness, uh, based on Otis Moss III's book, Dancing in the Darkness. We're trying to Look into some spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. Y'all know this is turbulent times. Listen, before we get into the sermon tonight, though, um, we say the same thing at the start of every message when we get to this space in the worship program, and I want to make sure that it's stated clearly here. Regardless, if you get nothing else from the message tonight, I'm talking about anger, and some of y'all are just completely peaceful, and so you might not get anything from it, but get this at least. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your value as a human, this is what we consider at the table to be that space in the service where we come back together as family and we say, no, no, regardless of what the box score says tomorrow, what your boss says about you, how many likes you get on the socials, whatever it might be, you're enough, you are seen, you are significant, you are substantial, and I don't want anybody to get that twisted. Who you are is more important than what you do. Even if outside of these here walls, what you do gets more attention than who you are. We're talking about anger tonight. I have an angry story. Obviously not mine. I would never be that vulnerable with you. <laughs> I came home late the other night from our cabin. We did a little 4th of July extravaganza after Lake Harriet Banshell drove up, spent a few days with the fam up there, and then um, I came back late. I would have driven back with my family, but my dad was begging me to play golf with him. And so the Bible says, honor your father. And so I said, yes, okay, dad will do it. So I took a separate car, drove home late. The time after we got off the 18th hole was roughly around 9.30 in the p.m. And so it took me about until 12.30 when I got home. As I'm driving, I'm feeling pretty good about the progress that I'm making. I think I'm holding down a steady 80 miles per hour. I'm not like that you know, the rebel without a cause that I was in the days of yore, but, but I felt good about what I was doing out there. It turns out from Royalton to St. Cloud, there was a man directly on my rear who was not as psyched about my progress. He made that perfectly clear by riding me almost the entire way. Why he didn't go around me is none of your business. I don't know why, but he's there the whole way. And I am... Uh, Obviously, I'm a pastor, and so I'm not one to employ the flicking of a finger or anything of that kind. And so I passive-aggressively just started, like, moving my rear windshield wipers very fast to kind of send, like, a... I was kind of hoping to touch on one of those childhood wounds, like he'd remember his mom wagging his finger. That was, like, the petty side of me right there. But you kind of have to get creative in these moments. You know, how do you express your anger if words are not an option? That's one of the tips I've learned from marriage. You know, if Lauren's upset with me, she doesn't have to say, she can just start breathing differently, and I'm going to start running for the hills. Like, I understand how that works. This guy, he's not really responsive to my, my wiping. Eventually, he does, though, go to my right. Comes up alongside me. He's got full intentions to go to the 90s. And before he does, though, he lines up directly parallel, 
and he looks at me and he calls me like a funny person. I couldn't really make out what he was saying with his mouth, but he does give me the full finger salute right there in the moment. And I'm like, oh, I saw that coming from a mile away. I figured this, this is where we would ultimately lead. What he didn't know though, is that after doing that, calling me a funny man and um, giving me that salute, he uh, didn't know that there was a stoplight coming in about 10 minutes. And so eventually we get to <laughs> the Clearwater exit and there is a stoplight that eventually came. He's on my right. 10 minutes after the salute, the funny man, all of that. And I pull up next to him. Now at this point, I'm like, man, I did my part. It's not like I was being irrational going 80 and 65. Like, I feel like I was already pushing the limits as is. I have nothing to apologize to you for. My windows are down. And so I pull up next to him. I promise you, this is the longest stoplight I've ever been at. <laughs> And I just kind of like, well, now that we're here, maybe there's a good sermon illustration I can pull out of this. <laughs> and so I roll the dice and I look over to this guy. His window is also down and he's looking straight ahead. But then he looks at me and he kind of shrugs his shoulders. <laughs> True story. And he goes, hey, sorry about that, ma'am. That was stupid. Or something about stupid. And, he, and I go, hey. I said, um, I got brass knuckles on. You want to say that? I didn't hear what he said, you know, so I was ready to bounce. But he goes, sorry about that, man. That whole thing back there, stupid. He was stupid. I thought about that for the next two hours on the way home. And I started thinking about different conversations I've had with people as of late, people who are older than me. I don't think they appreciate this question, but I often ask people... <laughs> What are your regrets in life? Like, are there some moments in your life that you wish you could take back? Some of those moments where something inside of you was tripped, got triggered, and you responded in this outbursty, kind of ragey way. Do you have any regrets in your life that you want to talk about? And what I've found, time in and time again. Is that the right phrase, Maggie? Time in? Time and. It's not time in, I in. It's time and. Time and, time again. Again, is that over and over, when they drive, like they drag these, these old memories out from their closet and they lay them before me, not once did they say, back then I was evil. Not once did they say, back then I was broken. Not once did they say, I was a, a, a incorrect, morally absent person. What they do tend to say is, I was stupid. Almost like intuitively they know it's not a moral issue or a character. Like it's, it's a wisdom thing. Back then I did this one thing when I got all hot and bothered and I was stupid. Man, had I known what I do know now, I wouldn't have done that. But I was stupid back then. What was I thinking? I couldn't really tell you. I lost my head, got caught up in the midst of the moment. I was stupid. Something about anger, something about the fruits of anger leads you to do some stupid things. I know it, you know it, something about anger. I had this memory I was telling somebody last night because uh, I was hoping I could maybe find one more sermon illustration if I really pushed the point in a conversation downtown. Didn't really come that way, uh, but I ended up confessing and saying, you know, I have this memory for me when I was a sophomore in high school and I found out that this, this guy, a junior, point guard on the Mounsview basketball team, started spreading rumors that I had used my mom's makeup to cover up a zit on my left cheek. 
Now, it was true. Like, it wasn't a rumor. I did. Like, it was there. But you don't say that out loud. Like, that's supposed to be confidential, man. Like, I don't even know you, bro. Why are you spreading that rumor? So after class one day, I was so angry because I had different people coming at me with all kinds of smoke. And I saw this guy, a little bit smaller than me, but I had that atomic energy that comes with when you're just fired up. And I grabbed him by the collar, and I shoved him against the wall, and I waited for a crowd to form. And I just started wailing on him. I just started like going to town. He's reciprocating, get kind of. I want you to know, never mind, you don't need to know that I won the fight. That's not important for here at church. The point being is that I wasn't really thinking. Matter of fact, if you asked me why I did what I did, I would have told you right now. I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like I had to like, man, it feels like it's from the times of Braveheart or something like that, but like defend your honor. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous, but I felt like something needs to be done about this young boy who's running his mouth and far be it for me just to step aside and let these rumors go all about me and circulate throughout the school. I had to do something. It felt like it was my only course of action. Now ask me how I feel about it right now and I feel stupid. I feel stupid telling you about it right now. Anger. It's interesting, I'm kind of one of those nerdier guys where late at night, if I'm struggling to fall asleep, one of the things I like to look up is just the etymology of different words. Again, nerdy is all get out, I'm confessing to you right now. Anger is an interesting one though. Because if you really go back to the roots of anger, which like if you go back to the roots of any kind of word, they're always trying to describe some kind of picture. That's how words were formed, that's what they orient around. Anger is no different. The word for anger at its baseline root nature is about strangling, something is being strangled, something is being limited, something is being narrowed, something is happening to a person that is leaving them red in the face, snorting very frequently, and they're feeling narrowed. Who in this room is angry right now? Just a brief cursory glance at some of the research that's out there today about how America right now is one of the more, ang we're at a more angry point than we've been in recent decades. And what I learned from that is that most of us are carrying some low boiling rage about something, about some time, about some story that came along and it just interrupted our will. It was an obstruction to our desires, what we wanted, what we needed, what we felt was necessary at the time, and it pissed us off. And we've been carrying that around. Research suggests that what happens, though, is that the pain that we take on ends up being poured out on people who had nothing to do with it. People in cars ahead that you feel like you need to call funny people and flick off. People that target who are standing in the aisle a little bit too, they're taking up the whole aisle, you can't get by. They're not even conscious of, that happened to me the other day. Low boiling rage, walking around with some kind of pain, some kind of wound, some kind of like PR person inside that says, you have every reason to be upset. You should be angry. They did do you, do you dirty. Like you, you have every justifiable, well-warranted reason to be pissed off right now. You should be angry and you carry that around inside and you're just waiting for somebody to present themselves as a release valve for you. Somebody to give you that sideways glance that look a little bit too long. Somebody to say that slip of a tongue and all of a sudden you're going off for no reason. Some sports team just lose and all of a sudden you have two fans of these teams and the players don't know you and you shouldn't care about them like the way you do, but you do and now you're fighting and what are you doing? Why? Well, it's because we carry this low-grade rage all the time. 
It's like we feel like there is something inside of our will that has been strangled. And we need to make it right. And when you have some kind of hands around your neck and the world around you gets narrow, the only path forward is retribution, is vengeance, is trying to make it right through this very small means because you've yet to catch your breath and take a wider glance at the situation. Think about our country. Man, we, I had, again, last, you guys, I was downtown last night in these different kind of meetings with people uh, till literally 3 a.m. Do you know how aggressive that is to be preaching the day after a 3 a.m.? <laughs> right, Eric? That's aggressive. But it was funny as I was bringing up these different anger conversations, I was telling them, like, this is where I'm trying to get to tomorrow. And they said, you know, one of the guys I was with said, you know what's interesting is if you think about it, we just had July 4th. And you think about the nature of our country and the origins of our country and what our country is always run on. It's always been run on and, and uh, animated by some sense of anger, some disapproval of how life is right now. There's positive spins to that, there's negative spins to that, but the baseline birth of America came from a group of people who said, we do not like how life is right now, we'd like to do something about it. And so we went and we created this country based on that energy right there. We used to settle like disputes, not through court cases or open dialogue or baseline conversations over coffee, but by drawing guns. Now we go to Twitter. Now we go to neighbors. Now we go behind all these different things that are animating our lives. We need to pay attention to it. Like I said already, you take a cursory glance at the research at hand as to where we are at as a country and anger will be one of the most prominent features that comes up. America is not some outside concept. <laughs> Y'all know that, right? Like this is America right here. We are participating in our country, in our society, in how we exchange ideas, how we go about treating one another. Why are we so angry? And what do we do about that? Well, we gather here on Sundays, and one of the things we talk about is the fact that you and I are born and made and honored by being called children of God, made in the image of God, chips off the old block of love itself. And so one of the questions we have to ask then is, if that's where we come from, that's what we're supposed to be about. If we're trying to rewire our being to something more congruent with our original manufacturer settings, what is God actually described as in the scripture? And there's one redundant thing that comes up again and again. I'd start with this story right here. There's this moment between Moses. Moses is standing with God, and Moses says to God, Hey, God, is there any chance, please, for me just to see you in all your glory? I've heard the rumors. I've heard the whispers. Can we just have one face-to-face -face dialogue, and I can just lock it all in, full clarity and whatnot? God says, that's probably not in your best interest. Like, it'll probably be overwhelming. You can't handle the truth type thing. But they did concoct some kind of plan in response. They said, here's what we'll do instead. I will pass by you. I'm going to put you behind a rock. You're going to hide your face. You're going to be just fine. But I'm going to walk past you. And in the aftermath of where I've been, the wake that you will then walk in, you're going to be able to ascertain what my essence is all about. And so Moses signs on. He's good with the plan. And he hides behind a rock. And this is what the text says in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and 
in transgressions and sins. What else is God like? Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Nehemiah 9.17, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles he performed among them. They became stiff-necked in the rebellion. They appointed a leader who didn't have the most prosperous future laid out for them. Instead, was trying to return them back to slavery. But God, you're different than that. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate God. Matter of fact, you are slow to anger and abounding in love. Psalm 86.15, but you, Lord, you, Lord, are a compassionate merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How many of you are like, Matt, we get the point. There's something about God that's slow to anger. Well, the only way you feel that is because you're getting impatient. You're not slow to anger. So I want to bring up a few more. Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says the Lord is merciful and gracious. Say it with me now. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Say it, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Proverbs 14, not about God, but about each of us. It reads like this. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city, slow to anger again and again. That's just taking a few of the examples. When people in all kinds of religions, in the Hebrew scriptures, set out to say what God is actually like, one of the defining characteristics they put forth in the text is that this God doesn't have a hot temper. There's not a short fuse present. If God is the exemplar display of what it means to be us fully alive, what we are supposed to be like. If we look at God and God is that which we are supposed to look like eventually, then one defining characteristic that we are all supposed to be aspiring towards is being slow to anger. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. The Hebrew terms there for slow to anger, they they come out of these two very distinct Hebrew words, and the words are erek, which means long. I'm rolling my R to make it sound like I know that's how it's supposed to be said. I actually have no idea. (laughs) E-R-E-K. Erek. That felt weird. Erek. No offense. But, like, that just doesn't. Erek. That means long. The second word, though, apayim, is the Hebrew word for nose. When different folks ran into the divine in, in f- for thousands of years now, and they set out to set something down on paper, on tablet, on stone or something, and tell the stories around campfires, they didn't say God is slow to anger. They said God is the one who has a long nose. Which sounds absolutely absurd and makes no sense until you realize that when the scriptures go out and they try to talk about somebody who's full of rage, They're talking about somebody who has a small nose and is hot and bothered. They're burning nose. God is not that way. God has the long nose. God takes the breath. God breathes in the moment. God is not responding to the stimuli as it first lands within. God is taking his time to breathe it all in. Viktor Frankl, one of my favorite um, thinkers, writers, minds, he writes this, and it's always stuck with me because I struggle to maintain this because It's so important. This is everything, not just anger. It seeps into all kinds of categories in our lives. He writes this, 
between stimulus and response, there is a space. Did you all know that? There's a space between the initial reaction, between what you just went through and how you're going to go about it after that. Between what took, what hits you and how you hold it. There is a space between stimulus and response. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. God is the long-nosed God. There's a reason why intuitively we understand that when kids are having full-blown meltdowns, we say, can you please just take a breath? I say to Grandma, I said, can you blow out these candles? I got three candles here for you. Can you just take your moment and blow out each of them? Can you please take a deeper inhale so that you can get wider than the moment that you are in right now? Can you imagine where we would be if we did the same? It's such an elementary message. I understand that you've heard this all before, but please take it seriously. Can you imagine if we didn't just like act upon this atomic energy that we experience when it comes to anger and rage, but we actually said like, what is the best foot forward? Not just for me, because oftentimes reactivity to things that make us angry is all about you. It's petty, it's small, it's defending the small little kingdoms that we've all kind of established. I'm guilty of it. I think y'all are too. But like healthy humanity says, I'm angry right now. What's the best next step forward? Everybody else might have small noses that get hot and bothered real quick, short fuses. They might be set off just like that. Let it not be so with me. Because I'm a part of the long-nosed God's kingdom. And to be a participant in this kingdom, to be a participant in this, in this community, is to recognize that we are not set off so easily. That we redirect the rage that we experience. There are so many things that we should be upset about. Collectively, at least. There are still racist prisons that are being built for profit. There are still inhumane immigration laws that are being upheld throughout the land. We could go on and on. Violence against women. We could go on and on. There's a lot of things we should be angry about. But you responding reactively, instead of actually protecting that space where you can respond, it's not helping anything. If anger was making the world all better, then, then nightly news would make the world a perfect place. Anger is not contributing to the flourishing that we are all in pursuit of right now. And so for us, as a micro community in this macro world, can we be a people who have long noses, who breathe a little deeper? There's this story in Mark, I'll close with this, story in Mark that I think is just beautiful when you actually sit in it and you let it saturate within you. Jesus is stepping onto the scene. Problem is that it is Sabbath. There's a man with a shriveled hand who approaches him and says, can you help me out? Got this hand, don't know what to do about it, but it's a problem. Pharisees, pastors, priests, the religious leaders of the land, they're gathering around and they say, um, obviously you can't do anything. <laughs> If you heal that man, you're breaking the laws. You cannot do that. It's wrong. It's not good. It's corrupt. It's broken. You have a religious tradition that you are tasked to uphold, maintain, and protect. And Jesus, the text says in Mark that Jesus turns to them and he looks at them angrily. The human one, the son of love, Jesus, experiences the rage that you and I pick up throughout our days. Text says that Jesus turns to those and he looks at them and he's angry and he says, honestly, you tell me what's better, to save or destroy life. 
It's kind of like this dry humor moment where it's like, just be honest with me. What are we actually talking about here? What is better? You want me to kill or to heal? Jesus then proceeds to heal the hand. But he says to the person as he's healing the hand, he says, stick it out so all can see right now. It is this creative response to an injustice at the moment that says, I feel the atomic energy of this, but I'm not going to live for the next few moments trying to demolish or destroy or destruct anything that you guys are doing. I'm going to focus this energy towards something that is of peace, something contributing to goodness. Is your anger, the things that are setting you off, is it contributing to the peace of the world? Think about it real time. Think about it in your life. Jesus, God, um, I, I think it's safe to say we are, uh, yeah, we're angry a lot of the time. Confession, I'm angry a lot of the time. God, I feel it within me just a, I am easily susceptible to being set off by small trivial things knowing that I don't, I, I just need help. I think we all need help, God. Lord, I want us to take seriously that space between stimulus and response, God. And that is our responsibility, God, to live into that and own our lives, God. We are not reactive people. We are responsible people. Give us the courage to live into the convictions of the long nose, God. To breathe a little deeper when things go awry. In Christ's name we all pray. Amen. Um, when I was listening to what Matt was talking about, I kept thinking of these um, different verses talking about like abundance and how Matt, you talked about how anger can like narrow the way that we look at the world. And yet Christ said that I come to bring abundance, to bring you abundant life. And that when we are overtaken by our anger, that boxes us in, that shuts us down, that limits us. And yet Christ continually has come to make our world and our love and our vision more expansive, to make it greater, to make it more good, more whole. And then it made me think too, I read this book called The Bad Christian Manifesto and it said that everyone thinks of God one of two ways. God is either full of love or full of wrath. And every way that you exercise yourself in the world flows from that belief. And to think that what would happen if we remember that God is a God of love, instead of fearing, well, what if, God is narrow. What if God is limited? And then two, thinking of, um, sorry, my brain's all over the place, but thinking of at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, now we see in part, but one day we will see in fullness. And once again, that wholeness, that um, unlimitedness, that what I would say would be full love. And that's the way that we push against anger that we push against something that is very real, very human, and it is not wrong to feel those ways. And yet we have been called to a different way. And that's what we come together each week to remind ourselves of, because sometimes life can be hard, life can be busy, life can make us forget um, why we were created. And so we take moments here gathered together to remember the, the night that Jesus spent, his last night, um, before he was arrested and crucified, he spent with his friends and he shared a meal with them. And at that meal, he reminded them of this expansive love. He told them anger will not overtake you. Um, 
it will not lord over you, but you have been called into love. And so because of that, he showed the greatest display of love and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this, and whenever you eat this, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he lifted it up and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink this, remember me. And so when we gather today, that is what we are doing. We are remembering love. And so we're going to have some time. Um, You're going to come down forward in one line, and you're going to receive the bread, and then you're going to dip it into the cup, and then you'll receive the body and blood of Christ. And together we will remember what it is to follow love, to remember love, to live into love. And so as a part of that, would you stand and say the prayer with me that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. things I think is always so interesting is at some point people were trying to establish, you know, what does it mean to actually be full of the Spirit or be led by the Spirit or actually have some kind of spiritual basis to your life and so they approach Paul and they go, what are like the pieces, the evidence that I should be looking for? And Paul lays out for them nine pieces that should be present on the surface and when you get to know a person, like this should be in their lives. You remember what these nine pieces are? Love, joy, peace, patience, Goodness, gentleness, what am I forgetting? Am I forgetting anything? Kindness. Kindness. Last one is self-control. Faithfulness is in there too. I am a pastor. (laughs) He lays out all these things. And if you look at each of these words, it's about what we offer to others who are around us at all times. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. It begins with the love that I can offer you. It ends with me controlling me. In order for me to provide for you the things that the Spirit is driving up in me, I need to be a long-nosed person. I need to have some wisdom within me. I need to relieve you of the responsibility of being in charge of my emotions. You're not in charge of me. Matter of fact, if you look at the text, Spirit's not even in control of you. Spirit says, like, if you are living a life fidelity to the Spirit, you are in control of you. You are responsible for your own life, your own emotions. You are protecting and preserving at all costs that space between stimulus and response. Self-control starts with what I have to offer and love for you, ends with my commitment to you that I'm going to take care of me. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands? As we close out this service and we think more about as we go home tonight about how we're not going to be so easily tripped up because we are a long-nosed people. We take deep breaths when everybody else is reactive. We choose to respond because we know who we are. Hear these words from the heart of God. Friends, no matter who you are or what you have done, who you love or what you have lost, 
where you've gone or the places that you stay, please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are beloved, celebrated, seen child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace. We will see you next week. Love you guys.